We're very <clears throat> honored today to have a speaker with us. And you want to hold your book? Sure. So the author of this book, Father Ed, the spiritual mentor of Bill W. The, the story of Bill W. Oh, the story. Spirit. I got it. Yes, the story of Bill W. Spiritual mentor. Spiritual sponsor. Sp sponsors. You know what? I keep. Yeah, because <laughs> my mind is very slow. So, but um, Don is a wonderful uh, journalist. Has a great story. You might. Uh, you can. I'll let you tell whatever you want to tell about your story, but um, she's done a great service to the world by uh, putting this material together in one source of the origins of recovery. And I, one of the things we were talking about, I think is fascinating, just how the 12 steps is so different from what was before. Like, there's very little hope for enduring uh, sustainable uh, recovery before, and I think with the 12 steps, you see people that have had years of recovery, which is something that's really new. So, without further ado, I'll just hand it over. So, well, thank you, thank you so 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 much, Father Meinrad. My my name is Dawn Eden Goldstein. I, I'm I'm a non-alcoholic, uh, and uh, I don't get a high Dawn. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. That was what I was what I was hoping for. Um, so. Um, in Father Ed's words, the way he would describe me is underprivileged. Father Ed, Father Ed Dowling, who was, uh, a, who, who, who was uh, a, a, what B Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA, called Father Ed uh, a, his spiritual sponsor. Uh, Father Ed would call me underprivileged because of my being a non-alcoholic. Father Ed called himself underprivileged too, since he was a non-alcoholic. When he discovered AA uh, almost uh, 10 years into his, his priesthood uh, in, in, 19, in 1940, uh, he felt that he had found, uh, he called it, he called this AA and the stories that people tell in AA, he said it was the greatest drama in America today. And he meant that as the highest compliment. He loved going to AA meetings, loved the stories. And uh, because of his personal friendship with Bill Wilson, uh, he was known as, uh, you know, they, they called it in that time a kind of a fellow traveler of AA, meaning that, um, that even though he was not an alcoholic, um, he, he was welcome even at the closed uh, meetings. Uh, because uh, of his great uh, love of AAs and his great empathy with them. Uh, so for the next uh, half hour or so, um, I'll give you a condensation of some of the things that I talk about uh, in the biography that I wrote of, of Father Ed. Uh, and then uh, after that, I'll, I'll be delighted to answer any questions that you might have. Uh, before I begin, I just want to say something. Um, those of you... Uh, who are familiar with, with my last name, Goldstein, um, might uh, recognize that Goldstein is typically a Jewish last name. I grew up in the uh, Reform branch of Judaism, um, uh, which is the more, the more liberal branch as opposed to the, ox, to, to the Orthodox um, brand, uh, branch of Judaism, which is where uh, p people, um, that's where you, you, if you see Orthodox families, the men will, have, will wear hats and, and beards and so on. Um, so so uh, I, uh, in my teens, fell into agnosticism, 
Uh, and I was agnostic through my 20s until I had a spiritual experience when I was 31 uh, years, years old. And that spiritual experience convinced me that God really existed and, and, it, and, and it convinced me that I had to get baptized. But when I got baptized, I was determined that whatever church I belonged to, I was going to be A, B, C, anything but Catholic. I didn't want to be Catholic because Catholicism had rules. And uh, welcome. And, and, um, and I thought, I, you know, I had been at that point a rock and roll historian. My, my work had been interviewing rock musicians of the 60s and telling their stories. I'm not old enough to remember the 60s. I was born in 68. Uh, but loving 60s rock and roll, I interviewed people like Gene Pitney, Leslie Gore, Del Shannon. Any of those, anyone recognize any of those names? Yes? Yep, so, some. So, so I, I was a rock and roll rebel, didn't like rules. I, even after my spiritual experience, I got baptized and I thought, I'm going to shop till I find a church that doesn't challenge me, lets me do me. Uh, but uh, God had other plans. I got drawn by uh, invisible ropes into, into Catholicism and uh, entered the Catholic Church in, in 2006. Eventually got a doctorate in sacred theology. Uh, I was the first woman to get a, a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake uh, in the Chicago Arch Archdiocese. Uh, and since then, um, among other things, I've, I've, I've taught for a few years at Catholic seminaries. Uh, there aren't a lot of women who teach candidates for the Catholic priesthood. Since the Catholic priesthood is all is all male, but I, I've been blessed to do that. So my journey is, you know, literally, it's taken me from the rock and roll nightclub world. Um, not addiction, but certainly not a uh, not a very rules-driven lifestyle. To uh, this um, to this Catholic church that's full of arcane rules, and I've actually found that that for the most part I like them. <laughs> and uh, so so I, I've been on a journey, and I know that many of you are on a journey too. And, and I I want to say especially uh, for those in the room who might be. Uh, non-Catholic or or non or non-Christian, uh, that I feel your pain at being surrounded by uh, by Christians or being in a uh, in, in an environment where there are many Catholics. Um, I I just um, I want to tell you that even though I've written a book about a Catholic priest and about the Catholic spiritual influence on AA. Father Ed would be the first person to say, you don't have to be, to be Catholic or Christian or of any particular faith to benefit from AA and the 12 steps. You just have to have a desire to stop drinking or to stop your addiction if you're in another 12-step um, program uh, besides uh, AA. That's all you need, just the desire to, to quit and just the openness to work, uh, to work the steps. Uh, I heard of uh, a woman in Washington, D.C. who was, uh, who's, who's, who's an atheist, uh, but she's been, I think at least for the past couple of years, maintaining her sobriety through the steps. Uh, she made her higher power, don't tell your 
I know there are a few councillors here, but yes? Oh, you yeah, want to pass it around? Okay, I thought you were, I thought you were gonna I thought you were going to, to stop me from saying that oh, you no. don't have to be Christian. To oh, no, 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 no. You, I like steps. that. I like Like, it. wait a minute, stop! No. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, so so yeah, this woman in Washington D.C. that I heard of recently, um, she is an atheist, uh, but she's um, been maintaining her sobriety for the past uh, couple of years and doing pretty well. Apparently, she made her her higher power, her dog. And that sounds a little weird, but the reason why is because she loves her dog more than anything in the world, and she wants to be sober so that she can be a good mom to her dog. And that's getting her through. Now, for me, my higher power is dog spelled backwards. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, uh, uh, that's uh, and that was Bill's idea of, of a higher power. Uh, but you know, the important thing is is the willingness, just the willingness to work uh, to work the steps. Uh, so, with that in mind, I'll tell you about who Father Ed Dowling is and why I wanted to write this bi biography of him. And I'm going to uh, tell you that uh, using uh, three three words, uh, and I'm going to use these three words to talk both about Father Ed Dowling and about his, his dear friend, <coughs> Bill Wilson. Uh, those three words, in order, are, are failure, surrender, and witness. And I'm telling you those three words right now so that when I get to witness, you'll know that I'm wrapping up. <laughs> uh, so uh, the first word is, is failure. So a bit of background about Father, Father Ed uh, Dowling. Um, he, was, um, he was someone who was uh, very much acquainted with failure. Um, when he was in high school and, and college, oh yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm using. To, or, or that, oh yeah, you're welcome to record it too. Yeah, that's, that one's mine. Just don't want us to get mi mixed, mixed up. I, I need to know which one is which. So anyway. So Father Ed Dowling, uh, when he was in high school, uh, he had the nickname Puggy back then because he had a pug nose. People gave, gave people nicknames for, like that in those days. He was born in 1898, so he was in high school in the, in the 19-teens. Uh, he was uh, a baseball and football star on, on his, in his high school, and then uh, when he went to, to college at, at a place that doesn't exist anymore called St. Mary's uh, College in St. Mary's, Kansas. Uh, he uh, was uh, a star of the baseball team there, captain. Uh, but he had experiences of failure uh, in, um, in uh, college and just out of college because he thought he was going to be a major league player. And he tried out for major league teams. And even though he was he was, you know, the big man, the big athlete where he was from uh, for the baseball teams that he tried out for, major, major, major uh, teams, uh, he, um, he didn't make it. They, they told him he wasn't, he wasn't ready. Um, then um, he worked for a year at a newspaper, actually, as, as a reporter on a St. Louis newspaper, and then he got the uh, idea to uh, to join the Jesuits, um, and he, what he wrote to 
a friend of his, when he was explaining why he wanted to join the Jesuits, I should tell you first of all, who are the Jesuits? The Jesuits, they're also known as the Society of Jesus. They're a religious order uh, founded uh, in the, in the um, early uh, 1500s by, by, um, Saint, by Saint Ignatius Loyola. Um, and um, and I, I, uh, I'm thinking 15, 1500s. Uh, any, any, am, I, am I, yeah, I'm, I'm in the ballpark. Anyway, uh, anyway so Catholic, Catholic religious order. Uh, and at, at the time that Puggy Dowling was thinking of, of joining them uh, in the late 19 teens, uh, they were known as like a kind of elite military corps among Catholic religious orders. They were nicknamed God's soldiers. Later on, they were nicknamed God's marines. Uh, they were highly disciplined. They were ready to be sent uh, anywhere where they were needed as missionaries, as high school teachers, as college uh, professors. Uh, and uh, th their period of formation was very, uh, was very long. It was 12 to 14 years. Um, so many of them had doctorates. Highly, highly educated, highly disciplined people. Uh, and uh, so they were really looked up to. Jesuits were really looked up to in the Catholic community at that time. They still are, but it was even more so back then. Uh, so Father Ed, uh, when he was 20, uh, going on 21, and about to join the Jesuits, he wrote a letter to a friend explaining that uh, a Jesuit's thoughts, this was, this was what you know, young Puggy Dowling thought, a Jesuit's thoughts are always on the highest plane, the highest plane imaginable, or, he wrote, or our faith is a sham, meaning that he had like put his entire faith into thinking that these Jesuits are the holiest people around, the, whole, the, the holiest men that, 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 that holy could be. Uh, and you know, if that's not true, then the Catholic faith isn't isn't true. Uh, so he wanted to become a, a Jesuit priest so that he could be holy like them. So, age of 21, uh, he enters the Jesuit uh, novitiate, which is uh, where uh, the Jesuits begin their formation for two years. It's a kind of a tryout to see if they're if, if they're um, if if they're uh, capable of vowing themselves, vowing their life to, uh, to serving God as a Jesuit. Um, so uh, once he entered the Jesuit novitiate at 21, he found out pretty quickly that just putting on a Jesuit cassock, they wore these long uh, habits called cassocks, he found pretty, er uh, pretty early on that just putting on the long cassock did not make him holy. Mm. Uh, he was still the same person with the same... Uh, you know, stinking thinking <laughs> that he had before. He wasn't an alcoholic, but he had some, you know, thoughts that he wasn't proud of having. And he thought that that being in that Jesuit environment would would lift him up to this high heavenly plane, and it wasn't doing it for him. And worse, he was in this environment where he just assumed, comparing himself to those around him, he just assumed that everybody else, all these other young men who were training to be Jesuits, were were, were holy, and that he was the one who, for whom it wasn't working. Um, so uh, one thing that did help him was uh, very shortly after entering the Jesuits, he, like his fellow novices, 
were made to, um, to take these, to do the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Uh, the spiritual exercises are a, a program that lasts 30, uh, 30 days um, where, um, so, so, you know, in a, in a way it's, it's, it, it, it's kind of, you know, there's some comparisons with, with here in that, in that for 30 days you've got to focus on, on being open to change and being open to a new plan for your, for your life and, and, and you've got to live with a certain amount of discipline, more discipline than during ordinary, um, ordinary time. But in the case of the spiritual exercises, during those 30 days, every day, uh, the, uh, the person making the exercises is given a list of, um, of meditations, which are um, scenes usually from the Gospels, from the life of Christ, where, where um, the person will imagine what it looked like and what things, if he was walking with Jesus, like as Jesus was doing the Sermon on the Mount, what would it have looked like to be next to Jesus when he's, when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount? What would, it, what would it have been like to have heard what Jesus is saying and just to take in the, 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 um, the, the smells and the whole feel of it? Um, so the person making the spiritual exercises goes through really the, all the major events of Jesus' life, walking with him, including Jesus' passion, death, resurrection, with the goal of, of asking God, um, God, what is, what is your plan for my life? What is my true vocation? Uh, so uh, after, after uh, the now novice Jesuit, Ed Dowling, made uh, his spiritual ex exercises for, for 30 days, uh, he he knew that there was something in those spiritual exercises that helped him, uh, but he still didn't um, have the real certainty in faith uh, that he that he wanted. Um, and he actually uh, ended up going through a faith uh, crisis, even um, even uh, worrying that he was slipping into atheism. And he talked to his spiritual uh, director, who was the director of the of the of the novices. Uh, and he um, asked, and, and, he, and he told his spiritual director of his uh, crisis in faith. And the spiritual director asked him, well, are you ready to say that there is no God? And Ed said that no, although he couldn't say for sure that there was a God, he wasn't ready to say that there was no God. And so his spiritual director said that in light of young Ed, Ed's confused condition, that was enough, that was enough to keep, to keep going in, in the novitiate. And, and then finally, uh, Ed uh, Dowling um, ended up begging the, his novice director to let him make the, the uh, spiritual exercises a second time. That was unheard of in the Society of Jesus. No novice makes the spiritual exercises twice. The spiritual exercises are 30 days, and in a two-year program to make two 30-day exercises, basically to be off the grid mm. for two 30-day periods is too, is too much. Um, but because of his, um, 
at, at crisis, um, uh, the uh, novice director eventually gave him permission, the only time I've ever heard of this permission being given in the like 500 year, or, or almost uh, more than 500 year, almost 600 year history of the Society of Jesus. He was given permission to make the spiritual exercises a second time, and then, um, and then he, um, he had um, a, a real spiritual experience that, that, changed, uh, th that changed him. Um, can I have my book back a sec? I have something in his words. I promise I'll pass it back here when, when I'm done. But at the end of chapter five, uh, um, uh, there's something in uh, Father Ed's words where uh, after, after, um, after graduating from the novitiate to the next level of Jesuit formation, when he was um, when he had made his Jesuit vows, he wrote to he, he, he wrote to his sister to explain what had happened, and he says, and, and he says that uh, the spiritual exercises got him focused on what does it mean when Jesus says says uh, if any man will will come after or follow me, let him take up his cross daily. Um, what does that mean? And he writes. I concluded that everybody's vocation is to take up his difficulties either patiently or eagerly daily. Uh, for, for, that may sound familiar as one day at a time. Uh, he goes on to say, and though I could not decide until the last minute to become a Jesuit, still I knew my vocation. It was daily to take up my difficulties and I figured that if I did that for two years, I would be in a position to judge about joining the Jesuits. And just before my vows, I saw that the Jesuit life for me was just a great big life instead of daily cross that I had the chance to take up. So I did it. And because of the 11th hour decision and its relation to the cross, I took for my vow name, some saint's name we take on the occasion of our vows, Dismas, the penitent thief who got in at the last moment. Uh, so, so you know that tells you something about Father Ed's experience of those first two words I mentioned: the failure, that hitting bottom, and then the sur surrender. Um, later on, he said that when he hit bottom, uh, he learned the most valuable lesson of distinguishing between his feelings and his will. Um, he, he compared it to the gospel story where Jesus, uh, the, night, uh, the, the, the night before he, he is suffering on the cross, he, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying to God, um, to, to his Father, it, it, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me, meaning take this cup of suffering away from me. Don't let me drink this cup of suffering. But he added, but not my will, but thy will be done. Because for, for, for Jesus, in his human nature, he naturally shrank away from suffering on the cross. But he had set his will in line with his, his father's will. And so, uh, and so he, was, he was able to overcome his, his, fe his fear. Uh, and uh, for, for, for Ed Dowling, when he was in the novitiate, he learned that just because he thought, 
I can't take up this cross, it's too hard. I can't take up these difficulties, it's too hard. Just because he felt that didn't mean that he wasn't capable of willing to take up his cross. It was a matter of will, not the feelings. These were all things were experiences of his, of, of his life that he's, that when he encountered AA, uh, he, uh, they gave him a deep identification with the people making the steps. Uh, so I'm going to speed up a little now because I want to allow for time for, for questions. Um, so with regard to Father Ed discovering AA, it was an alcoholic who introduced Father Ed to AA. As I mentioned, by then he was an ordained Jesuit priest. He had been a priest for almost 10 years. He had already gotten a reputation as a priest for people with problems. Uh, he had an office. He worked for a Jesuit publishing house where his official job was that he was uh, a, an assistant editor of, of religious publications. But um, a Protestant friend said that, his, that Father Ed's real job was as God's ambassador to humanity. Oh, I said I would return this, didn't I? Sorry. Here you go. Um, so Father Ed's real job was as God's ambassador to, to humanity uh, because uh, he would just, Father Ed would just sit in his office and people of all you know, states in life, from very wealthy people to very poor people and people of just different races, backgrounds, not just Catholics, would line up outside his door every day, every day um, just asking, asking um, him to help them with their, with their problems. And he wouldn't just sort of give them sweet, you know, platitudes. Um, he wouldn't just say, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Uh, if, if somebody came to him and they had some, like, problem with, with, you know, the city or a bill collector or something, he would pick up the phone and try to give them practical help as well as spiritual help because he wasn't satisfied unless somebody would leave his office you know, not just you know, feeling like things were going to be better, but really knowing that things were going to be going to be better. Uh, so uh, it was an alcoholic who told him about AA, and at first he was suspicious because AA was was brand new at that point. It hadn't yet taken off around the country, uh, and uh, he thought it was pretty strange this idea that his alcoholic friend was going to try to stay sober through sitting, through having these meetings, sitting in a room with his old drinking buddies, uh, you know, alcoholics talking to each other. It, it, this was radical, because at this point, as, as, as uh, Father Meinrad just uh, touched upon in introducing me, um, there was no hope for alcoholics, medically speaking. Um, th there was no proven treatment, anything that was shown to have to have a consistent rate of working in alcoholic treatment. So, um, so you know, doctors were experimenting with things like terrible things, like electroshock therapy, even frontal lobotomies. And ultimately, you know, frontal lobotomies is where they actually move remove parts of the brain, thinking that this will make a person less impulsive. They don't do that anymore. But in the nineteen 30s, 1940s, they were still uh, doing that to some people who had, who had um, terrible mental uh, conditions or addictions. Um, and so um, the most that 
an alcoholic could look towards was to just, you know, eventually be, be locked in what they call a sanitarium um, or a, a nut house for the rest of his, of, of his life. Um, so AA, regardless of what anyone thinks of AA, and certainly AA's been around for more than 80 years, there have been other treatments for alcohol and addiction that have come about through that time, but regardless of what anybody thinks of AA, of the 12 steps, AA was the very first um, form of treatment for alcoholics, the very first form of therapy to really give hope that, that people could maintain lasting sobriety. And it's because of AA that we now have these other um, you know, non-invasive you know, treatments, more humane you know, treatments, uh, because AA paved the way in showing that sobriety is, is possible. Uh, so when, when uh, Father Ed's alcoholic friend took Father Ed to an AA meeting, that's when Father Ed, as I mentioned, was dazzled by the stories of the alcoholics. He loved hearing their stories. He was inspired by their stories. Uh, and he also was intrigued by the 12 steps. Uh, he took a copy of the big book, which had only been out for one year by then. He took it to a Jesuit friend who was an alcoholic. And the uh, Jesuit friend said to him, well, these 12 steps, they're similar to the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Uh, because in the spiritual exercises, there's also that experience of, of needing to purify oneself, to get to, to admit powerlessness, to get rid of sin, and then to, to grow in grace, to grow spiritually. Um, so when, once Father Ed um, got that idea into his head from his brother Jesuit that there was a connection between the spiritual exercises and the 12 steps, he had to meet the author of these 12 steps and find out was the author of these 12 steps inspired by St. Ignatius of Loyola. So Father had made a special trip to New York to meet Bill Wilson. What he didn't know when he went there was that Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA and the person who was the human instrument through whom the 12 steps came to us, uh, Father Ed didn't know that at that time in November of 1940, Bill was on what Bill would later call himself, he would later call a dry drunk. Uh, Bill was having a, just a breakdown. He was terribly depressed uh, because it had been a year since the big book had come out and Bill had thought that with AA, with the big book, he was going to sober up all the alcoholics in the world. Uh, but here it was a year later, he had printed up 5,000 copies of the big book, and now more than half of the copies that were printed were just gathering dust in a warehouse uh, because Bill had been unable to get the word out to the press, to other people who might, who might be able to help popularize uh, AA. Um, now, very soon after, things changed. There was a big news story in a very popular magazine, the, the Saturday Evening Post, about AA, and things became better. But at that point, in November 1940, Bill was starting to feel pretty hopeless. So Father Ed came to visit Bill at the 
in, in Bill's little room at the AA clubhouse where he was living because he and his wife Lois had, had lost their, their, their home um, because he had been sinking all his money into AA. Uh, so Father Ed came up to, to, to Bill's room and, and uh, said to Bill, um, I'm very interested in, in the connections between your 12 steps and the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. And Bill said, never heard of them. <laughs> and, and Father Ed laughed. And when Father Ed laughed, that broke the ice. That made Bill comfortable to talk with him. And before Bill knew it, he was taking the fifth, making his fifth step uh, with um, Father Ed. Uh, the fifth step, um, you can correct me if my language is, is wrong. Uh, I normally read it out of my book where it's published, but it's Oh, it's on. It's it's up here. Oh, perfect. This is great. So, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, you might think Bill Bill W was the one who wrote the big book. Hadn't he taken the fifth already? Uh, but the truth is, even though Bill wrote the twelve steps, he hadn't actually made all the twelve steps because uh, when he came into not even came into when he when he, when he um, became sober, had a spiritual experience, uh, and then started to live soberly, um, he did so through a, a Protestant group called the Oxford Group. Um, and the Protestant group had um, what they called four absolutes, uh, and also they had um, not written down, but just in their sort of in their sort of traditions, they had what Bill later identified as six steps uh, that were, you know, for changing one's life. Um, and so Bill, in in uh, writing the twelve steps, incorporated what he had learned in the Oxford group and just expanded it. And, and he thought twelve was a good number. There were there were twelve apostles. It just seemed like the right number of, of steps. Uh, so. Uh, so Bill hadn't actually made his fifth step until he did it with Father Ed. Um, and uh, Bill was confessing to Father Ed his frustration that AA hadn't taken off. And, and Bill said, uh, and, and when Bill expressed his frustrations, Father Ed responded to him with Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are they who hunger and thirst. Uh, his message to Bill was that this this hunger and thirst that Bill thought was a curse. You know, this was the hunger, the thirst that had led him to become addicted. Um, Father Ed was, point, was, was saying that this thirst was actually a blessing. It's just that instead of pointing his thirst downward to something that's less than him, becoming the slave to something that's less than him, alcohol, it, Bill needed to deepen his surrender to really realized he was thirsting for God, thirsting for something, someone higher, uh, and, that only, and that only God could satisfy this. Bill believed in God at that point, but he hadn't made, um, he hadn't come to trust as deeply as he would trust under Father Ed's guidance. That's why even though Father Ed wasn't an alcoholic, Bill came to call Father Ed his his spiritual sponsor. 
um, for 20 years from then on until until um, Father Ed's death in 1960. Uh, Bill and Father Ed maintained this very close friendship. Um, so, so you know, we we've now gotten to Father Ed's fail failure and surrender. We've gotten to Bill's failure and his surrender. One other thing I want to tell you that Father Ed said to Bill is that Bill, during that first meeting, when he was expressing his frustrations, he said to Father Ed, won't there be any satisfaction? And Father Ed said, no, never. <laughs> and the thing is that what Father Ed meant, uh, he was using some tough love to really give good news. This was, uh, was Father Ed's witness, or the final word now, witness, to, to Bill, uh, and this actually witness that Father Ed gave had to do with Bill's own witness through the 12 steps. Um, I, I believe, this is my impression based on what I've read, it's something of my interpretation, but I believe that when Father Ed said, no, there'll, no, never any satisfaction, what Father Ed was pointing Bill to was that we will only be fully satisfied in the next life. So we can't expect to be fully and completely satisfied here. It's not going to happen. But we do every day have an opportunity for a taste of fulfillment, a foretaste <coughs> of that heavenly satisfaction. And I believe that, that Father Ed pointed Bill to his foretaste of satisfaction in the 12th step that Bill wrote. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So Bill already knew when he wrote those 12 steps that the only way he could stay sober was by, uh, by carrying the message, by helping other alcoholics to get uh, sober. So I believe that what Father Ed impressed upon Bill was that Bill's, the foretaste that Bill was to have of his satisfaction, his fulfillment, was to be found in each alcoholic that he would encounter each day because it would be in Bill's witness to that alcoholic, that the alcoholic in, re in receiving or sometimes not receiving Bill's witness, but however the alcoholic would respond Bill would, um, would experience in that, in that encounter a sense of ministering to Christ and in turn receiving Christ from that alcoholic. Now, you know, of course I'm using Christian language. You could say, if you're not Christian, that there, there was a power from on high that was given to, to Bill to use for good if he would cooperate with it. And that um, each person being made in the image of, of, of God, um, it, each person, um, if we are good to that person, if we minister to that person, we are in some way ministering to God because we are, we are being, we are being uh, good and loving to someone who, whom God loves since God loves each and every one of us as if there were only one of us. Um, so so um, 
I, I believe that Bill learned that his, from Father Ed, that his satisfaction, his foretaste of satisfaction, uh, of heavenly satisfaction would come, his satisfaction would come through his daily experience of witness and encounter with other alcoholics. Certainly Father Ed uh, himself benefited so much from his own experience of witness and encounter. It changed his priesthood. He said that, he said afterwards, uh, th that meeting, that the graces that he received in working with alcoholics were equivalent to the uh, graces he experienced at his priestly ordination. That's a very powerful thing for a, for a Catholic priest to say. He felt that his priesthood was renewed in every encounter that he had with alcoholics, whether the alcoholic was Christian or, or non-Christian. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not a priest, never will be as a Catholic woman, but I uh, do have, there is such a thing as the priesthood of the faithful uh, in uh, that, that we exercise our priesthood of the baptized in witnessing and ministering to others. So I'm very, very grateful that you and being here have given me the opportunity to to witness of the good that God has done in my life and of this great gift that I've had in being able to write a biography of Father Ed Dowling. So thank you so much. Uh, I'll be happy to answer your questions, and God bless you. Yeah.